that was the idea. How do we unite people through competition? How do we teach people that competition is important? And how do we teach people that you should show up and fail to take first place, but continue to show up? And Welcome to our latest episode. Today, we are joined by Steve Forty. Prior to founding FitFight, a global fitness competition app, Steve was a consultant for Johnson & Johnson's orthopedic trauma division, where he utilized eight years of critical care and trauma nursing experience. In the military, he earned the rank of Master Sergeant after serving over 23 years in Army Special Forces. He is a level one sniper and attended Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, as well as a Special Operations Planners course in Norfolk, Virginia. Steve earned a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from Quinnipiac University, completed a critical care residency at Yale New Haven Hospital Systems, and holds a Bachelor's of Science from Southern Connecticut State University. In March of 2020, Steve was asked to join the amazing team at the Hospital for Special Surgery as the Chief of Staff for Crisis Management, the number one orthopedic surgical hospital in the world, as they transformed the entire hospital into a COVID treatment center to do their part in the fight to save lives during the height of the COVID crisis. As the crisis ebbed, he was asked to join the leadership team there as a chief wellness and resiliency officer. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Steve, how are you tonight? Uh, Dan and I are so happy to have you on the show. It's great to kind of kick things off, especially this early into season two, and um, and just to be able to catch up with you. How's your night going? Oh, fantastic! And I'm uh, really grateful that you you asked, and grateful to be having this conversation we're going to have tonight. Of course, yeah. I mean, we're we're excited that you even uh, honored our your presence in the book, and uh, yeah. we're excited. You know, we you got to share a little bit of your story in the book, and uh, man, it was it was awesome when we first met you, and you just got straight into it and pulled really on the heart of what we were trying to do with this book. Um, cause for me, I think you were the second person that I physically was with, um, doing the interview process. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was incredibly powerful for me. And so I, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. You know, the, the, if you turn the pages of the book, um, you know, there's actual giants in that book, you know? Um, so I'm incredibly humbled, uh, to be on the same pages with them. You know, there's there's uh, men and women that have had such experiences after two decades at war, and uh, so many people have contributed such a, a substantial piece of the fight more so than I have. So uh, I'm I'm just humbled to be a part of it. So so thank you for even asking. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, you know everybody plays a piece for sure, but uh, serving 23 years is is pretty substantial. And, and I know it was on again, off again serving in the National Guard, but if you can uh, kind of take us back to the beginning of you know, what inspired you to join the military in the first place? Because um, I know you joined in a pre 9-11 uh, military. <laughs> Very pre. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it was an interesting time. Um, I, you know, there was a few different things. I, I would say that the biggest thing that pushed me in the direction was, um, you know, my initial introduction into the military through ROTC. Uh, I was a freshman at uh, Northeastern University and um, I had gotten a taste of what the military uh, was like. And, and, and I was an athlete my entire life. Um, so the physicality of it came pretty easy for me. And I knew I wanted to do more. So I uh, enlisted into the um, Army Reserves at the time as a way to round off my career and my experience on the road to becoming commissioned as an officer. And mm. 
um, what would follow is what, you know, just really pushed me in the direction of uh, going special forces. And, and what had happened is my father passed away uh, during my freshman year of uh, college at Northeastern. Uh, he was a veteran himself. He was a Marine Corps veteran uh, mm. uh, in Vietnam. And he was severely injured, um, mm. you know, after 13 months in combat. And he actually died from cancer from Agent Orange. Jeez. And I had one of those first real life moments um, <laughs> you know, we, we always have a few of them, right. But the one that has sort of everything turns on or hinges on where, you know, there's no do over. And I remember being at the, uh, uh, financial aid office at Northeastern and recognizing the fact that I had no way to pay for college and they expected to be paid for college. Yeah. And there was just no means. There was nothing that was going to change the fact that there was a need that I, I didn't have the ability to fulfill. Um, and it was at that time that I, um, you know, basically withdrew, withdrew from college, whatever, and, and, and tried to figure out a way to, to make a buck and figure out what my next plan was. And quite frankly, I was having a, a hell of a time in Boston, not being an adult. Um, I was working at a bar uh, in the Marriott Long Wharf um, and having a little bit too healthy of a social life. And, and a year had gone by and I I'd just, I'd gotten nothing done. I mean, nothing done. And uh, that prompted me to uh, take a look at the uh, uh, 19th Special Forces Group. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I needed a different path. I knew I wasn't going to get an opportunity to do anything. Uh, I was barred from going active duty at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you, at that point in time, you couldn't transfer from National Guard into uh, active duty. Quite frankly, oh, wow. everything was downsizing wow. during the yeah. It was during the uh, Clinton Clinton years, and um, mm -hmm. everything was actually downsizing. There were people graduating from college. Um, commissioned officers and they were getting these deals like, Hey, you're don't need to pay back college and you don't need to serve sign here. Take wow. care. Um, so it was a very different place than it is right now where my, you know, inclination would have been to enlist and uh, probably, you know, my, my thought was to, to go to Ranger Battalion at the time, but there was no road there. So the most I could do was special forces. So I went and found a home at the 19 special forces group in, in Rhode Island. And that is what began this, uh, uh, this journey for me. The, the, such a significant uh, journey for me. Yeah. Were you always um, just interested then in being in special forces? Um, no. You know, I grew up in a household that was, um, you know, the trajectory of my parents' marriage and mm. all of our lives were altered significantly from, from a few things. Um, my father suffered from post-traumatic stress. And he was a severely disabled veteran. He had been, um, uh, he was blown up in a Jeep. They called it a booby trap on the Western Union, I believe. But, uh, hmm. you know, it was an IED. It's what we know as yeah, an IED. So he was IED'd in Da Nang. Um, he had his, you know, buttstock of his weapon basically blown through his right lower extremity. His skull was fractured in five places. He had 70% body surface area burns. Um, he spent as much time at St. Albans Hospital recovering as he did in combat uh, you know, in, uh, in, in Vietnam. So my family was not, uh, they were incredibly pro patriotic, mm -hmm. but really, really not looking for one of their children to go surf. Yeah. And it was a very different lens. It was a different optic. I right? can imagine uh, back then too, especially what he went through of why they won't want any of their children to serve. Totally understandable. And the yeah. interesting thing about it, and I, I may even get a little bit emotional here, but I, my big joke is, you know, but I'm, a 225 pound problem. If someone has issue with me crying, we, we can figure it out. Right. But um, <laughs> not, not referencing you guys, but just something I always say, like it, it, 
<laughs> is um, when I went to my father and said like, hey, I was planning this, this path. And he looked at me just so, so calmly. And he's like, it's up for every young man and woman to decide the capacity in which they will serve their country. Wow. End of story, full support. Wow. So if he can offer that level of support, you know, um, it was extraordinary. It was a gift. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what else to compare it to. It was a gift that this man who had every reason to say like, man, I love you. Uh, I did the part for both of us, you know, yeah. could have easily, could have easily have been the narrative. I did it for both of us and uh, yeah. you're all set, go live. Or I served so you don't have to. So what are you doing? I, that could yeah. have been it. It wasn't it at all. And then surprisingly, the pride that um, many of my other families, family members had, even as concerned and worried as they were, um, the pride that they had for having another generation of people serving was, was really significant mm. and it was great. Did, did you and have what not I to go and not to even go too off far off track, but you know, you said you weren't really doing much with your life back then. Were there other kind of interests you had besides the military that you saw yourself doing? Maybe it was like five to 10 years down the line. Yeah. You know, um, I, I can tell a funny story, but I, I want to see, I, I don't know how it'll play. <laughs> no pressure <laughs> so i didn't have a um thing i was good at right so i was um i i was always fast and strong whether i was training or not mm -hmm. and um my academic career was light i don't think i considered myself particularly uh intelligent um <laughs> you know, when we all go through MEPS, right? And we, and we, you know, take the ASVAB and all those tests. Um, I remember the, the recruiter drill slide or whatever it was at the time. I don't know. And uh, he's, he's like, come here, genius. And I thought he was, you know, busting my balls because mm -hmm. <laughs> I scored really poorly. You know, I was like, ah, <laughs> the word's out. I'm an idiot, officially. Um, but I was actually because I scored, you know, very well. And, um, I didn't have that thing that identified me and I was surrounded by people, you know, at that age of 20, I think it was 20, um, where a lot of people understood what they wanted. They might've wanted to mm -hmm. go to school and become lawyers or architects or doctors or other people were getting commissioned to go into the military. Some people wanted to be professional pilots or state policemen. Like that was my circle. I, I hung out with a bunch of musicians from Berkeley in Boston and they knew wow. their path or, or they thought they did, but I was a bit lost very sincerely, you know? Um, I liked partying, um, and uh, that was the beginning and the end of my skill set at the time. But I did know I didn't want to um, make nothing of myself. I always aspired mm -hmm. to, 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 to be somebody to be taken seriously. And this seemed like a good path to begin that journey. You know, one of the things that had happened in that story, and I'll give you the abridged version, but there was a hometown, uh, you know, idol hero of mine when I was uh, in, in high school, a very young kid in high school like a freshman and uh, this kid was a much upperclassman i think he was a senior at the time football player of the works you know prom king etc yeah. and i ran into him and <laughs> bust him and it had really turned out that he peaked in high school and i remember <laughs> it was like oh my god if that's where <laughs> he started and ended up where am i going to to end up and, and it was that, that quick is. where turned on a dime and I said, this is my new path and this is what I'm putting a hundred percent of my effort into and mm -hmm. I'm going to make this happen. So, uh, thankfully 19 special forces group, uh, gave me the opportunity to, 
to try out and go to selection. And mm. uh, once I got through that gateway, you know, it was just a matter of knocking down the other, the other gates and getting through the training. That's crazy. So uh, I know you joined pre nine eleven, um, and I would imagine you were in for several years, especially if you're in during the Clinton administration. So you're in for several years before nine eleven happened. Um, but growing up, especially in the Northeast, and then seeing what happened when the Twin Towers came down, like how did that affect you and your mentality? Uh, especially serving in, in 19th group. Yeah. Um, so it's a complex question for a lot of reasons um, because of what was happening in my life at the time. A hmm. um, few weeks before that, we buried my mother hmm. uh, to an acute alcohol event. Hmm. Um, she overconsumed at a wedding, fell, struck her head, aspirated, and I took her off life support three days later. Wow. Jeez. Okay. 9-11 was my first day back to work. Wow. Um, and I was actually in the air when it went down. And um, sorry, I got a puppy here making some noise. And 9-11, <laughs> so it was my first day back. I, I got grounded in Midway uh, in Chicago. I was on my way out to LA. Hmm. Um, there were no rental cars to be found. You couldn't get, nothing came back to the airport. No one could go anywhere. There was no public transport. There was nothing happening. The entire blanket of the airport was shut down. And the only way I could actually get out of uh, the area at Midway Airport in Chicago was I rented a car service to pick me up and drive me back to Connecticut. Wow. And um, I'll never forget the optic of driving through um, the areas and truthfully, I, I'd be making it up if I knew, I believe it was, you know, the corridor, uh, the West Virginia corridor that you go through when you mm -hmm. go from the Midwest. And as we were cutting through and we were going through the mountains regions and we began passing heavy equipment, excavators, cranes, front loaders, dump Jeez. trucks. And it went on, had to be for 90 minutes, a single Jeez. convoy of people coming, coming from all over the world to us all over the country to assist. Right. That's yeah. crazy. And I was so compelled. I wanted to get on a plane yesterday. I was angry. Mm -hmm. um, I drove through New York City as the sun was coming up and saw it. We uh, drove through over the Tappan Zee Bridge. If you know the area, this is a bridge up by, a little bit further up on the Hudson River, but on a clear day, and it was a clear day, you could see straight down and you could see the the uh, smoke and everything billowing up and you still saw construction equipment and everything. And uh, I was um, grateful to be in proximity to um, being able to do something about it, you know. Now, that wouldn't come for many years, but um, I was still grateful to be in proximity to do something um, mm. or at least to train to do something. I knew that yeah. there was a possibility of doing something. And all of us, I, I think, to a man, and I, I say a man uh, because in special operations up until recently, it was an all-male gig. Um mm -hmm. We were chopping at the bit. Many of us were looking at other units to try to go to that we knew were getting deployed. National Guard units were deployed almost immediately. National Guard special forces groups were deployed very, very early on in the, in the war. Mm -hmm. um, so we were looking to strap hang. And, um, you know, there were certain things they were looking for. And most of us weren't what they were looking for. You know, they're looking for medics and combo guys primarily. And then, you know, we start reassessing whether or not me going to the weapons course was the, the best plan for Steve's career. What, and what, uh, How early on was uh, that? Was that like October? Oh yeah. They started yeah, yeah. playing. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. October, November timeframe. Yep. 
you know, so we really did try to do what we could to get involved. And, and some guard guys did get deployed really early on, but um, we would end up getting uh, sent to Kuwait uh, mm-hmm. to continue the missions that were currently going on and deployed in those areas. And we were, you know, best able, very frankly, and it was the right decision. We were able to, uh, you know, get our readiness up. Um, you know, doing foreign internal defense missions in places like Kuwait and the active duty guys mm-hmm. that were slotted to go there were, were put in theater. And that continued for a bit. Um, but then obviously, as you know, everybody got their 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 turn to, to, to go to either one of the two conflicts that would kick off soon after. Yeah. You know, we, we talk about it as such a pow- powerful image you were talking about driving through West Virginia and seeing all the trucks and everything going into uh, into New York is, you know, we talked about it a few times, J-Rod, um, who I think, uh, when we were up in New York, we visited J-Rod as well. And, uh, he, he, has, had, he was in contact through JC, just like you were. Yeah. And, okay. um, he, um, he told a very powerful story too, just how that whole area. And we talked about it on that podcast is it's amazing to see how such a tragedy can instantly bind people together. Mm-hmm. Like how yeah. quickly overnight there could have been any sort of disagreement or, you know, haste or anger towards your neighbor. But the second something like that happened, everybody was wanting to help each other. Yeah. And that's one of the things that shocked me with COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because we had a unifying enemy in COVID. Yeah. Um, but yet, the way it netted it out, the the shelf life on that piece, and we'll go into that later in the show in the interview. Um, but that 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 galvanizing factor had a short a short half life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I I know there's a lot of factors, and I want to get into all that, especially when we yeah. when we talk about your experience uh, through all of that and helping out in the hospital. So um, I want to dive in a little bit deeper to that. Um, but to go back kind of into those early years of your military career um, and talking about those first deployments and things and when you finally did get to see, you know, some action and, and actually spend some time overseas. Um, is that something that kept you motivated, kept you staying in? Because, twenty again, 23 years is a long time to commit to something mm-hmm. and uh, and wanting to continue to serve. Yeah. Um and I wonder, you know, I've never sort of done a deep dive with myself <laughs> with those choices. Sometimes, you know, it's good to leave those things where they are. Oh, yeah. we, uh, it was interesting, you know, I got to deploy a couple times, uh, well, multiple times in the 90s. I mean, multiple times, um, you know, uh, I did Egypt a couple times, which was great foreign internal defense missions and training missions. Mm-hmm. We got to really do the the special forces training mission. If we think back, it's actually pretty funny, but uh, we had done a new, we were doing new equipment training uh, for the first rollouts of GPS. And it was uh, <laughs> literally like, I mean, it might as well have been like a box with the directional arrow on it, you know? <laughs> um, and it, you know, it, it, I think it got you, you know, plus or minus don't, 30 Don't age yourself here. too much. <laughs> But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I think it got you plus or minus thirty miles within your target. Um, wow. But but it, no, it was it was good. But you did have to know how to use it, and it, it, there was you know some instruction that we did. So you know we got to train train the Egyptian Rangers on these things, and we worked with soldiers from the UAE, and it was it was interesting. Um, and it was you know getting that cross cultural piece down, which would pay dividends later. Identifying the commonalities between our fellow fellow man and fellow warriors that would pay dividends down the road. Um, so I got to do a lot of that in advance of 9-11, right? Um, and then 
deployed in support of the uh, of OEF to Kuwait. And then we got to this place, and you guys are probably too too young to fully understand. But there was this fear of this bog dwell time, like how much time are people spending overseas versus at their home dwelling? And mm-hmm. the way that the calculation worked out, we weren't getting sent anywhere in direct support. We weren't going to see any quote unquote action, you know, that, mm-hmm. that we wanted to see um, or, or, you know, truly test ourselves the way we wanted to be tested. And it was a sore spot. And that's why I said it was a long road to get there. It was a sore spot for us because when you talk about, you know, being up here in the Northeast, there was a part of me that was furious and mm-hmm. even enraged to think like, you know, you're from Ohio. You think it landed the same way for you? Now, this was wrong on my part, but it was where I was. You know, you're from Idaho. You think it hit you the same way it hit me? We had guys in my unit. We had a guy in my unit in particular who would later go on to deploy to Iraq, who was literally just started with, he was a, a, a police officer in New York City, just went to FDNY, finished the academy. I think it was within a few days. And I don't want to mistell the story, wow. but my, my recollection is it was in a few days that 9-11 happened. Jeez. Okay, and his crew got hurt on 9/11, and a lot of guys, and the death toll was horrific, and the funerals he had to attend, and everything mm-hmm. he went through. So there was a part of us that knew him and saw the pain that he was in, that wanted revenge for that. I'm, I'm yeah. just being candid, like you, you know, yeah. I I know. revenge isn't a good thing and it's not supposed to be personal but this was personal and a lot of us were like you from florida and you think you know what it was like i mean where i lived at the time in milford connecticut i could see the the smoke i mean like it was terrible and we were furious about it so it did land i in my mind it landed differently so when we knew we weren't going anywhere come 2003 um I got to that point where it's like, all right, how are you going to make a substantial impact in the world? And you do like people and you like medicine. So, you know, go to med school, do, do, do what you need to do. So I began taking the prerequisite for med school and in the application process you needed, and I can't remember the numbers, but I think you needed 900 patient contact hours in order to apply for medical school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so wait a minute, I could become a paramedic or an EMT, get 900 hours over the course of two and a half to three years and then apply, or I could do a bachelor of science in nursing and um, get the critical care and the experience that I wanted to get. And then if I applied to medical school and it took a while, we could still work as a nurse and have that experience, which would make me a better physician. And that was yeah. my thought process. So I went to nursing school, I finished that, I did a critical care residency and um, fell in love working in emergency departments. I mean, absolutely fell in love with it. You know, doing critical care, getting a point to serve your community again, uh, be, you know, having proximity to saving lives, being a part yeah. of the team. Those were all important things that I knew I wanted to do. I've always felt compelled to some degree for service. Um, so that's what I ended up doing. And I ended up working in an emergency room for, uh, for you know, almost uh, the better part of eight years. And wow. uh, yeah, and, and what had happened was a friend of mine who, um, just a fantastic guy, um, Mark Simon, just a, if you want to, if you take the other end of the spectrum of professional soldier from where I am, there's, there's Mark. I mean, just a, a, he's CW4 now. He's just a started in the old guard, just took care of people, took care of the men, just bettered himself constantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got commissioned and was taking a team to Afghanistan and called me up and said, like, 
hey, you know, um, I'm going to be heading overseas. And he even made some comment. He's like, you said if I was ever taking a team downrange. So um, <laughs> I ended up, it was true. So I ended up reenlisting because oh, I was wow. not going to, I was not going to watch my friends, people I cared about and, and uh, loved go downrange without um, being with them, you mm, know? Yeah. So I reenlisted and uh, began I mean, everything from getting back in shape, getting back in, you know, shooting shape, getting my mind right. I went through a bunch of different trainings leading up to it um, that, you know, would be put to good use down range. I still deployed as a as a weapons guy mm -hmm. uh, to Afghanistan, a junior weapons guy, actually. But I was a critical care nurse. So it's kind of like a, another secret medic on the team, another 18 <laughs> Delta yep. and uh, got to go down range with them. Uh, you know, trained for about a year, going to different schools and stuff, and then got to go down range. Wow, that's crazy. I, you know, I always two things that you said that I, I want to uh, make sure I cover. But first is it's crazy to me the National Guard, uh, Army Reserves, everything like that is. You know, they talk about being a citizen soldier or whatever, and like spending your time legitimately ninety percent of your time is like you're a civilian. You're just a normal person going to work, doing your job, but there's always something in the back of your mind that you know you're going to go to drill or you have some trainings come up that will remind you. But especially when you know you're in heavy deployment mode or you know your uh, your readiness is kicking into high gear, I just couldn't imagine that switching back and forth between your normal day job, but then also knowing in the back of your mind, I'm getting ready to deploy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what was that like, kind of that that switching back and forth for you? Yeah. Um, wow. Thank you for saying that. That's the first time I've ever heard anybody actually address that piece of it. Right. Um, and quite to the contrary, when people hear National Guard, they immediately think like, oh, he's not the, you know, he or she is not in the real army. Right. Mm -hmm. Which historically, if you look back to World War Two. I mean, if you look over the contributions that are made over the years, if you look at the fight yep. that's going on, the National Guard has more than done their fair share. And whether that's mm -hmm. combat arms or medical support or any of it, it's not sustainable to do what's been done over the past 20 years without uh, the oh, reserves yeah. and the National Guard. And especially when you get into like the logistics space, it just yep. absolute impossibility. So mm -hmm. I've always taken great pride in it. I've always taken pride too in the fact that what makes national guard special operations unique is the different skills that get brought to bear so everybody has their mos their job for those mm -hmm. listening that don't you know you have your specialties right but then in addition to that there's whatever you do on the civilian side mm. um so you know often and everybody thinks everybody in the national guard's a cop and it's it's true there's a lot of guys that are you know uh, police officers there yeah. um and that comes in incredible uh, it, it comes in such a it's such a great skill to have for a lot of the deployments that we do. Like when you're training a public protection force, like we did in Afghanistan and these things, it's a skill set that's amazing. And you can't, you know, these guys walk the, the beat quote unquote, or patrol or do their job. We had a detective with us. You have these guys that do this job and they're so good at it and they do it 24 seven. It's second nature to them. And then they deploy and they get to train in it. And that's mm -hmm. something that you can't have. So there's actually a better translation for the current, you know, insurrective environment that we're in. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm not talking about like the tier one kinetic guys. That's got to be a full-time gig. It's it just, yeah. it, it is and it is, and that's okay. And I never wanted to, uh, I, I would never want to take away from the extraordinary job that, 
you know, Ranger Battalion does and, you know, the, the other tier one units, the special mission units, it's a different set of skill that's brought when you're speaking in a purely kinetic environment. But when you start getting into that grayer area, when you start talking mm -hmm. about intelligence gathering and collecting, when you start talking about, you know, civil disturbance, when you start talking about counter narcotics or human trafficking or all these different things that come into the modern day battlefield, arguably a National Guard special operations unit could potentially be in the right setting. I'm not taking away from the active duty, but in the right setting could be more effective depending on the mission set that they're tasked with. Because if you had a National Guard team who's got three or four police officers on it that run mm -hmm. patrols and knows what it's like to handle people and knows how to teach law or instructors at the State Police Academy, which we had, that asset is irreplaceable. And, you know, one of the soft truths is, you know, you can't produce this after the fact. Well, these guys are already ready to go in this space and they do an amazing job when called to train other people in these different areas. I was a critical care nurse. Um but I knew chest tubes, right? I knew drug titra uh, titration. I also knew community medicine. When you work in a busy, you know, emergency department like Bridgeport, Connecticut, mm -hmm. which is where I worked, and some other emergency rooms, you know, you learn um, the community health aspect of things. You learn all the medications that people are on, and it it's an asset that's tough to replicate. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds interesting. I didn't answer too, your question. Like just memorizing um, yes, it's hard to straddle both lives. I apologize. I didn't even come close to answering your question. It is difficult to straddle both lives. And it, where it gets really difficult is on the coming back. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because, like, let's say, you know, you're on active duty army, right? And you get your 30 days block leave or whatever the case may be. And you go back. Well, you come back with the National Guard and you get that same amount of time. And then one day you wake up and even though you've been away from your family for this extended duration, now you're going back to being a nurse. Now you're going back to being a police officer. You're going back to working second or third shift. Okay. And then what has happened over the past two decades is about six months passes. And then you find out the next date that you're going to deploy or oh, scheduled no. to tentatively deploy. Or you find out that you're not deploying, but you got a six-week deployment that's going to be just inconvenient enough to screw up your relationship with your employer. Yep, man. Right? Make no mistake about it. The support you get by any civilian employer is it has a shelf life to it and mm -hmm. understandably so. And when the smaller the company it is, and the more inconvenient or more of a hardship or more of a cost it is to them, the less of a shelf life it has. And it's understandable. So when you, you know, you, you live these dual lives and there are people that have varying degrees of support um, for that. And all of it's understandable. You know, you should say like, hey, 100%, but quite frankly, nobody helps out these smaller employers or the employers at all. It's not like yeah. they get a federal tax break or something like that that assists them in this. Um, so it's weird to juggle both worlds without a doubt. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it is. I, I could only imagine experiencing it, but for the first time ever, I had to experience something like that. So we have a, a coworker at my full-time job and he was supposed to go to drill um, for four weeks, but he was in the middle of a project and a customer he was working with said, no, he can't leave. If he leaves, it's going to stop our progress and we're going to lose a bunch of money and stuff like that. We're like, well, he has orders to go. Don't know what you can do. And the customer called 
and got a hold of the National Guard and personally wrote a letter and like requested that he get um, an exception or whatever is whatever it's called sure. to not have to go and like went around the back way to do it and then like handed the letter back to him and was like all right you don't have to go anymore I was like what yeah <laughs> and, and it's so frustrating to me because to me I don't I don't think that employer realizes the impact of him not now de- like going on that training because mm-hmm. say something in the world did happen and that unit now has to deploy he missed out on all of the training that could have been critical to his position in that unit to make their readiness a hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, it's a balance, right? And I will say this other piece of it too, is I think on the other side, the national guard could also go a long way to, um, making it easier for employers or be more rewarding for employers Mm, to at least get educated on the process. And they do try, right. They try to have these events and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's really hard. Like, you know, you've served, it's hard to um, articulate what it's like. Like, first of all, everybody thinks if you go to Afghanistan, you know, you step off the plane firing gunshots and you do that for a six to 12 month deployment. And as you're getting on the plane, you're shooting the door and then you close the door and then you fly away. They, it's hard to articulate the reality of the environment. Right. Yep. Um, so, so you're saying it's not, not like call of duty light of it, but it's a reality. <laughs> it's not like video games then. Yeah. You know, it, it just isn't, right. Like, and I think everybody's haloing in. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, there is a a, a a a understanding mismatch. There's a understanding of the criticality of the need for the National Guard. And there's a continuum, right? There's people who are like, nope, we got your back 100%. And that's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have this group over here that's like, well, you know, what am I supposed to do when you're running around in the woods for two weeks? Mm-hmm. And a lot of guys pay a price for that. I keep saying guys. Yeah. A lot of guys and girls, and you know, guys and gals and women in the armed forces, you know, play a have paid a price for that attitude and that lack of understanding and a lack of education. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting battle that I think will have to be fought constantly. Are, are you still currently in the process of uh, retiring? I am. I'm actually going okay. through a med board right now. Okay. Um, which has been a, an interesting journey in itself. I got a, I got a few, a few miles on the, on the chassis at this point, I got, you know, the, several herniated discs. I had a really bad reaction to the smallpox vaccine. So all of these things are documented. So as, on my way out, you know, these things need to be properly adjudicated for, for, for my benefit. Um, so they've gotten pretty good at it. Uh, they've gotten mm-hmm. certainly better at these things, but right now I'm going through the process and it's like, we talk about the understanding the system. We have a person in California who schedules my appointments and they're like, oh, well, that's good. That's only, you know, 26 miles from his house to this center here in New Jersey. Oh, yeah, we'll just make it for eight o'clock on a Tuesday morning when it might mm-hmm. as well be a helicopter ride. Like when you have to drive, you've driven through New York City, right? Like, you know, yep. it's at rush hour. It's a four and a half hour commute at that point. Yep. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time driving all over the tri-state area going to appointments at different hours that I have no Jeez. control over. Jeez. Well, I remember you were telling us that in person. And obviously I, um, I'm interested in hearing more about where your life is taking you now, but I know that you mentioned before that you were still in the process of retiring. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ongoing thing and it'll probably be another six months. Ideally. Like, I mean, really, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy. Yeah. It's just nothing goes as quick as you want it. 
Yeah. So I, I kind of have a, a deeper question for you because I, I know you're in this process of separating and, and you've spent so much of your life in service to the military in different regards. Like, have you started reflecting back on it and thinking about the last 20 years and kind of 23 years and what that's meant to you and, and the things that you've thought of and, and are carrying forward um, after you retire? Yeah. Um, that's a big question. I'm glad you asked it. <clears throat> so the saying that I had and the things that got me back on the plane in 2008 and the sentiment that I've always had is that everything that's decent and good about me is as a result of the relationships and the friendships that I forged in the special mm -hmm. operations community. Mm -hmm. Everything that's terrible about me is in spite of most of those same men's best efforts. <laughs> All right. Um, I feel my age, right? Mm -hmm. I'm 50 and I've haven't, I'll be 50 in November. Uh, I haven't lived a, like a, you know, stress-free life. And, um, multiple knee surgeries, back injury, whatever. I'm not as mobile or as dangerous as I once was. And I think every man of my age probably starts feeling that some more than others, you know? Um, so I reflect on that piece of it. And my goal is to find ways in which to continue to serve. I mean, the value I've gotten out of my life and my existence is through some service. I mean, what you're mm -hmm. doing is service. Your book is service. Um, so I'm shifting my focus because my, my physical capability is not what it once was. Um, if I was a younger man, I would do it all over again. Or even if I had a younger frame, I would, you know, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe if I went through the ringer one more time, it actually turned out the way I loved. Um, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm board president of a drug and alcohol rehab in Bridgeport, Connecticut called Pivot Ministries. Mm -hmm. And uh, we save some lives there. Um, and the thing that's interesting about it is my my motto as of the past couple of years is to try to be a lot less heroic in the things that you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. Right. And when I first took over as board president of the ministry of, uh, of the, of uh, pivot ministries, you know, it was, I was asked to do it and I was happy to play a role in it. It started off with just doing a food bank run and things like that. And then I thought to myself, ah, well, you know, it's 50 guys a year, you know, keeping them off drugs and alcohol. And I don't know if I'm going to, donate time to charity. I, I want it to be something somewhat heroic. And then mm -hmm. as I began to get involved and I began to look at it, I realized what an extraordinarily uh, hard and heavy lift that is. Yeah. You know, we run the ministry on a, on a small budget and we get people clean and restore them usefully whole back to their families. And that is an amazing thing. Wow. So I don't think service will ever stop or not be part of what my life is. I just think I'm taking the experiences that I used. Um, I will miss the idea that I might get on a plane and go do my part again, truly. Yeah. Like it was nice to have that, like that was a coping mechanism for me post 9-11. It was a coping mechanism in all the chaos. It was a galvanizing force between me and the best men that I've ever you know, known and met and continue friendships with. Um, but it's time for the next 
group of people. I mean, well, probably at this point, it's time for the, the group after that to, to mm -hmm. take the torch and to um, continue that kinetic fight that they're capable of doing. And it's time for the rest of us to take the lessons they've learned and, you know, get involved in your communities. Yeah. Is, yeah. is my thing. Is there um, any certain like organizations that you've had experience or hands on with that you recommend for, for veterans? Yes. Oh my God. Um, Children of Fallen Patriots. Hmm. Okay. It's an organization started by, um, David and Cynthia Kim, uh, they're kind of neighbors. They live in my town. Um, he's a West Point grad. And um, I, I hope I don't, I hope I do the story justice, but essentially someone he cared deeply for was killed during Panama, who had a young child in the months. Oh, wow. I think it was months old. And mm -hmm. they set up a um, fund to ensure that that child had their college paid for. Since that, they've grown it into this extraordinary organization that funds college for any child whose parent was killed in combat that's period. really cool it's really cool and it's yeah. like you know part of me can't stand it because it's like why isn't the government just stepping up and yep. writing a check instead of sending 80 billion dollars in aid to wherever the hell they feel like it mm -hmm. that drives mm -hmm. me insane shave off a couple billion for the children of dead veterans like can yeah. you please mm -hmm. and i'm not trying to be political it's every administration get your hack yep. get your act together and get it yeah. done but in the meantime heroes like david and cynthia and the team at children of fallen patriots step up and do this incredible work they have raised millions of dollars they have really? sent tons of children to college and they continue the effort um you know on a daily basis doing this incredibly heroic thing <laughs> and um i am really proud to be even sort of peripherally associated with it. I give what I can uh, to them. And um, mm -hmm. it's such a pleasure to see that there's that much good in the world. That, that's what I love hearing about are like organizations like that. I mean, I think Dan and I have done research and some people will look it up after and then the numbers may be skewed, but I think it was an upwards of like 60,000 yeah. organizations are out there organizations that, that at least yeah. benefit veterans and there's still a major issue but you find those ones that are far and in, in, in between like those that are helping the children you know and it's i don't know that's that's pretty incredible to hear that the thing that's interesting about them too is um i've landed where i wanted to in my life somehow. I don't know how, mm -hmm. but I'm where, and I wouldn't change a thing on that. All mm -hmm. right. But if we go back to the reason why I left college, you know, my father died from injuries sustained, environmental injuries sustained in Vietnam. Now, I landed where I want to. I have what I need. I'm not asking for a thing beyond what I have. Right. But if we consider that you take me, I'm not that unique. And there are a lot of children from the Vietnam era. There are a lot of children that will be affected as we go forward. And the brilliance of children of fallen patriots and the people that work there is they're not looking to tomorrow. They're not writing mm -hmm. a check for the fall semester. They are looking to sustain this thing. And they're mm -hmm. looking to cover the extraordinary shortfall that's coming down the pipe. And it's thoughtful. And if you look up the percentage of money that gets donated that goes to doing what you think it's for, the percentages are the best I've ever seen. It's not like yeah, some no. of these ones. And we know who the offenders are, where we're talking like 45, 50%. We're talking like 99 or 98. I don't want to misquote, but 
I encourage everybody to look it up for themselves if they're looking for yeah. a charity to get involved in because wow. the numbers are extraordinary. That's just crazy to think about too, because I would imagine as a young child that's had to deal with those um, horrible consequences, and then all of a sudden your education is paid for through an organization that is somewhat tied in the same realm as your family member that passed away. It's almost a motivating factor to push through school, do the best you can, and go out there and really succeed in the real life because it's almost like, it's kind of like this weight is on you. So I almost imagine that they would encourage these kids to get out there and kind of just do the best they can. And man, do they. We see their yeah. success stories. I mean, we're talking like the opposite of an 18-year-old Steve Forty. These young men and women are getting <laughs> it done and hey, me knocking too. it I, out of the park. I slacked off way too much. There's sometimes I'm like, man, oh, not that I wish that happened to my family to motivate me, but something else maybe would have motivated me a little more. Right. And then what happens is you get old enough and I'm almost there where you stop caring about what those little fractions of times were and you realize what brought you to where you are today. Mm -hmm. And you start being grateful for even the terrible decisions because <laughs> yeah. it brings you to this place that you're supposed to be at this given time. Well, it's crazy. And I think a lot of people can relate, but I think in the mindset of an entrepreneur, most people that find themselves as being flunkies or barely getting by through high school or college and then have turned around and opened successful businesses. You hear about that a lot. You hear people that have been through a lot of trepidations in life that turn around and just have an amazing story to tell. Well, I think yeah. a lot of people have that drive that they want to do something. Mm -hmm. it, they just can't find it yet. And it's yeah. like, it takes a while for it to click. And what's interesting is going back to your story about the, uh, you know, the high school jock or whoever, you know, was at the top of his class and then you saw him and you're like, Oh wow, that was literally peak for him. What the fuck was happened? Like, yeah. Is, <laughs> you know, that happens, but it, it's, it's, I think everybody has the capability and the ability to find that spark mm -hmm. to drive them to success. And it's just a matter of finding it. And you're right. There's too many examples out there of where school maybe wasn't the right thing or it wasn't the right time for school. Yep. And then they figure it out later in life. Well, there's a million examples of that. And then, you know, you have these things like, I, education's important across the board, yeah. right? I, I mean, mm -hmm. Without a doubt, it's not arguable. But if we look at these things, right? Um, we have an entire country that needs to be put back together and that's going to be put yeah. back together with people that work in steel and concrete. Mm -hmm. You're not going to 3D print your you know, 140 story building and wherever it's going to be built. You're not going to 3D print the refrigeration units or the rail lines or the anything that's going to be required to keep this country built and growing and running. Yeah. And a, a, a deteriorating infrastructure is a national security emergency and we're there, mm -hmm. right? So when we talk about education, we need to be careful with what, and I'm not saying us, but I'm saying people need to be careful with education because yes there are liberal arts education i think it's important to study the greats i think it's important to understand the history and western civ and i think mm -hmm. all of that is important as a component but we need to have a good eye on what are the practical applications that we could start giving people and whether they're children of veterans or veterans themselves when they make this transition right are mm -hmm. we better off versus a four-year gi bill commitment paying off you know for you know a philosophy of western art or should we be equipping them with a truck welding rig skill licensure and insurance to yeah. start their own business, to start putting this nation back together? Yeah. Um, yep. And I think Children of Fallen Patriots and other organizations like um, uh, uh, Micro, you know, Dirty Jobs, like these are people yeah. that have an eye on that. 
And especially in the military setting, right? I mean, I basically, when I went back to college, I literally just put my head down. I took five, six classes per semester. I knocked it out. I had nothing in common with the students ahead of me, around me. Mm-hmm. I was paying for it out of pocket. I don't have time for your hangover. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to learn here and I really don't have time for whatever drama you got going on. I just want to get my license, my thing that I can earn with and move forward. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's what we need to be smart about uh, as we look at what we're going to do for our veterans going forward. I How are we going to give them means? Yeah. yeah. And and I have uh, not to steer it too much in a different direction, but I think it's interesting when you first told us this, but you start up a fitness competition app named Fit Fight. I did. I'm wearing and a t-shirt accidentally right now. Are you? Ah, perfect. So <laughs> I thought it was so interesting that you mentioned that because I, I personally don't know too many people that are in like the app development kind of industry. Is that still an interest to you in the future is like maybe developing more apps? Without a doubt. I mean, right now the hospital for special surgery has my full attention and the people at yeah. HSS deserve it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an amazing learning experience. Um, I was grateful to be in a financial position where I could screw up in a bunch of different directions. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just a matter of like putting pen to paper. And I did put pen to paper and sketched out and uh, built an app that did something that's never been done before. And we got it in about 7,500 users' hands in over 140 countries. And oh, wow. uh, it was it was a financial um, mm. loss, but it was an incredible win from Mm -hmm. a creation standpoint and a learning standpoint and it wasn't a huge financial loss but you know when you had that moment where we did a jump rope competition and we uh used uh the one of the prize we were giving away was a a veteran startup called cross ropes Mm -hmm. guy named dave hunt i believe his name was and um he had a relation with one of the guys that worked and volunteered for fit bikes and i was never got paid (laughs) and uh we had this situation where it was you know like I forget what it was. I think it was double unders, max double unders in two minutes or something. We had a kid from Jordan going against a kid from Israel, going against a kid from Argentina, going against a kid from Ireland, going against a kid from Honduras. Like, wow. and this happened in a 24 hour time frame. And then we got blown away because all of a sudden we get a video in from Syria. That was the idea. How do we unite people through competition? How do we teach people that competition is important? And how do we teach people that you should show up and fail to take first place but continue to show up and find holes in Mm. your games and continue to work so app development is definitely not in my future but finding ways to inspire actions that i think are important for humanity Mm. are definitely uh in my future it's kind of it's that's a cool thing to hear about because i think that i don't know you see too many of these um app development or workout programs especially like a lot of like the elite kind of youtuber people are starting up and a lot of them are like scams like a lot of them are like oh pay for this startup pay for this you'll be in the best shape of your life you'll gain 30 pounds of muscle in like four weeks and you're like Mm. no fucking way (laughs) so it's cool to hear about like just concepts like that that you guys started up well i I like that idea too because it's such an important thing that i want to circle back to is is that connection between people around the world and centralized around competition Mm -hmm. like there is no greater thing to unite people for one common goal than than to put a podium or a trophy or to put whatever i mean the olympics are going on right now and like the during covid and you know the world literally stopped and and everybody thought the olympics was still going to happen last summer up until the you know 24 23rd hour um right. right before and then they pulled the plug 
but still the world was able to figure out a way to come together now this summer. Mm -hmm. And it's just so interesting about that idea of getting people on an app, being able to compete with each other around the world. It's just a really cool idea. Yeah. Thank you. We had uh, took great pride in it. And, you know, one of the things that was really interesting is, you know, these people were competing for like a T-shirt, right? Like they weren't competing for much. <laughs> and they were essentially, you know, we're sending a $20 T-shirt, you know, and it's costing $150 to ship it to like. Yeah, I was going to say with shipping, that adds up. <laughs> right. And then we're getting hit with like, and then, you know, so it's a $20 T-shirt that gets shipped to Morocco. And then we're getting an email that the government of Morocco is taxing them, you know, eight dollars on the twenty dollar value t-shirt that we sent to them and these people are like this one young man literally like there were no screens on his windows these people oh, were living man. in poverty and we had this opportunity here this thing where we're like we're, we're he's working out he would show up i can show you guys the videos another time he would just show up and just compete over and over and over again whether it was push-ups or sit-ups or whatever he just got it done and that was the force behind Fit Fight. That was the idea and the concept behind it. That's cool. It, yeah, it was it was amazing. And I will, I'll never forget when I, I was able to run the whole company off my app at one point. And I remember being in bed and like getting incredibly emotional when I saw like the Arabic writing and I saw where these people were competing from and submitting their videos and everything. It makes me reflect on the fact that our wounds as a world are self-inflicted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that you could be a veteran and not recognize that. Now, you know, they're self-inflicted in terms of humanity. I mean, our towers were attacked on 9-11 and there's no way around that fact. Like that's what went down and it was wrong and unjust and there was retribution. Mm -hmm. It should have been. But the precursors to all of those events, and I'm not saying the precursor to 9-11, but the environment, whether it's World War One, World War II, whatever the thing is, these are all choices made by human beings that have caused mm -hmm. the sequelae yeah. that led us down this road. And I will never get used to this idea that this is as good as we can do. Well, it's it's such an important thing. Like World War II is a perfect example. You had one guy, one man's voice that was able to inspire people to commit evil against the others army. yeah and was able to to get a country to commit genocide against a people and it's just one person's voice but i would love to think that it's possible to reverse that mm -hmm. that it's possible to unite people again and I think it is, you know, it, it's those powerful people. And we, I don't know if we have one in our day and age right now, but you know, it's like the Nelson Mandela's it's the, it's the MLK's, yeah. you know, it's, it's those types of people that are going to unite people to, to really drive towards a common cause. Yeah. Um, but things like this are a perfect way to really put people on a platform where they see that they have a lot of commonalities, mm -hmm. that there's more in common with each other than there are differences. I said that exact thing about more in common than differences um, when I was speaking about a year ago, when I was asked what was the most shocking thing about combat. And the thing is, I mean, the commonalities, right? Like yeah. even in the case of Afghanistan, without getting into an ideological argument, both sides firmly believe that the actions that they are committing are necessary and just. 
Yeah. Yep. Period. Yeah. Now, I'm not getting into whether one is or whether one is. It's a time for another discussion, and my opinions are probably what you would think they are. But the reality is both of those. And if you if you look at throughout the world, we're living in this time, and it doesn't seem that we ever learn a damn lesson. No. I mean, look what's going on with China right now, with yeah. the Uyghurs. Like, how is this happening right now? And how is there no intervention? How is there no, you know, world focus on that versus the other things that are going on in the world right now? Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me sad, mm-hmm. but I remain hopeful. Yeah, I do too. I, I think that we're a very, well, I think this has always been around, but I just think that we're so stubborn and set in our ways. And then there's also, on the contrary, a lot of people that do want to fight for those issues that want to bring us together, they almost give up at the first sign of conflict. Like there's right. not, there's not, there's not the kind of people like Dan said, like MLK, they'll sit there year after year after year and put up with all that shit and be like, I'm not changing my direction. This is what I believe in. I'm going to keep going and keep bringing people onto this. The thing that's so striking about MLK too is um, that aspect of civil disobedience that he never, dis- that he never, um, deviated from Mm -hmm. the strength that it takes to not escalate is far greater than its strength the strength it takes to resort to kinetic activity Mm -hmm. right so wherever you fall out on some of the current civil disobedience protests whatever that's going on in the world is irrelevant we know that the true discipline in this comes through discussion. The productivity yeah. comes from discussion. It's like when we talk about, you know, children fallen patriots. Well, children fallen patriots is bending over backwards to raise money for children and deceased combat veterans. The federal government could pen stroke this solution, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the the fight, I had a better point than this, but the fight that currently is being fought is being fought in this kinetic space, which never seems to gain any traction. Yeah. Mm. You know, when some of the change that is necessary and needed in the world could only be done over time and over discussion and over appropriate education, mm-hmm. not extreme one way or the other as to the justification of any of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Think of the discipline it took for somebody like Martin Luther King. Yeah. Or Gandhi, yeah. like think of the discipline it took to not bring it to that kinetic space. Now, I'm not saying yeah. you turn another cheek when people crash planes into your towers. Far from it. And I, yeah, I, when it comes to family, when it comes to my country, there's no, I don't believe in throwing the first punch, but I believe in throwing every punch afterwards. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's, it's difficult to fight for something too when it's not on your doorstep. Mm-hmm. And like 9-11 was on everybody's doorstep yeah yeah much closer to some than others obviously but the the what happened on 9-11 was a blow to the country so again it's easy to unite behind something like that but when to your point talking about the uh, uh, uh the uyghurs in china like that's so far away from us yeah yeah you know what i mean it's 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 something that just doesn't register in a lot of people's minds because it doesn't affect them like why would they care about it if it doesn't affect them and I think the fight right now, and I, listen, I'm guilty of it. It's an yep. iPhone. <laughs> I'm guilty of it, right? The right thing is to throw it in the trash, find another yeah. way. Yeah. We know that that's the right thing to do, but I'm guilty of it just like everybody else. It's like there's mm-hmm. a certain in-between or justification when it comes to apathy, right? Mm-hmm. Like how okay am I or how mad am I really? 
Like I'd be more likely to get on a plane and go fight for those people than I am to throw out my iPhone. I don't know what the <laughs> hell that is, but it's probably true. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, it's yeah. kind of like that crazy, like, uh, I don't know if you watched that social dilemma documentary. I didn't know. You gotta watch it. Oh yeah. Cause now you're going to yeah. want to throw away your iPhone. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's do already. Yeah. Well, it, it's all geared around like telling you how we are geared as a society. Thanks to the social construct of social media and how everything's geared to influence you and keep you connected to your phone with the notifications, the pop-ups, the constant mm -hmm. reminders of you need to pick up your phone and look at it. And a, a very interesting thing. I was just, um, I was listening to an audio book, uh, called fuck your feelings. You guys should listen to it or read it if you haven't. Uh, it's a great book, but, um, they were talking about how the, the input daily to our brains is the equivalent of, uh, it was something like a thousand books or a thousand articles that you could read because you're just scrolling through it and it's yeah. constant media, constant things that's inputs to your brain that typically wasn't there. Typically all you had, you know, even 30 years ago was a magazine or an article or a newspaper or maybe something on the TV, but it wasn't right. scrolling through thousands of articles yeah. and thousands of comments and thousands of different inputs that are going on at once. Yeah. You'll, you'll have to check it out. We're obviously late to it because it's been a documentary that's been out there for a little while yeah. now, but yeah, no, I know when it came out and I know the premise of it. It's just, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm kind of truthfully, I steer myself away from most tech when I can. I'm so work focused mm -hmm. with tech yep. that like, I, I don't binge watch anything. I don't do anything anymore. My time is spent, you know, working out, sleeping and trying not to age. So no, that's, <laughs> I mean, which is great. I think you're on the better side of it. Yeah. It's mostly designed for, you know, kind of a lot of the millennials and, and people out there nowadays that are using every social media platform, right. distracting their everyday lives and how it's catered to your specific interests as opposed to the other yeah. and, and how that can be political. Giving away their privacy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, giving it away wholesale. Like it's oh, yeah. extraordinary to me. And we've all become inoculated to that. Yeah. Right. Like we're all comfortable. If you had told us 10 years ago that we had to do this and that this would be tracked or whatever, we'd have been like, are you insane? Yeah. And now we become yeah. like, well, they probably know it anyway, or oh, they're going to find out anyway. So it's, it's, it's Steve, you could, you could paint your toenails red, take photos of your feet and make money off that. Oh yeah. Post a I video of it. And you could, <laughs> <laughs> you just opened up a new business opportunity for him. There we go. <laughs> we'll start it. We'll start an only fans for Steve. <laughs> yeah it's an um, interesting time Maybe. well i want to i want to talk a little bit about um uh your involvement in the hospital for special surgery especially how you got there because i know it was a very interesting story of how you got into your position you are yep. in now because uh, you told it to us in person so i was hoping you could you kind of recap and, and tell us some, a bit about it yeah i'm happy to um yeah i'm as proud to work there as i've ever worked anywhere and there's a lot of reasons behind that, which we're going to, um, you know, essentially um, March time frame of 2020, you know, we, we saw what was happening in early March mm -hmm. and I was kind of had my eye on it. Still got a lot of guys overseas that work in different capacities in the Intel world. So it's kind of given a little bit of a heads up as, as I'm sure you were um, mm -hmm. where it's like, this is legit and it's coming. Yeah. Um, so I began um, dusting off the, the nursing resume uh, cause I, I, you know, you, you gotta get into the fight, mm -hmm. just it, <laughs> the power. If everybody just got into the fight in one way or another would be extraordinary, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. but you gotta get in the fight. Um, 
and I think you know you know the the saying as well as I do. You know, if not now, then when? If not me, then who? Like, hey, it means something to me, and I try to live my life by that. Um, yep. And I know there's a ton of men and women who are no longer with us that would kill for the opportunity, do anything for the opportunity to be able to get in a fight once again. So I don't take that lightly. So what had happened was I was literally in the process of dusting off the resume. Um, I'd been out of nursing for a bit. Um, they were talking about changing the re-licensure. I saw my nursing license, but I, I didn't. I wasn't current. And I was looking at, uh, I didn't have a New York license and New York was going to be the epicenter of this thing, as we all knew. So I was looking mm-hmm. like, how easy can I transfer a license? They were talking about lowering the requirements and threshold and expediting it. So I was going through all that process. And a incredibly dear friend of mine, um, who is one of the um, kindest and most uh, emotionally dialed in person that I've ever known as a huge proponent of the military had called me up and um without impersonating his voice um which i actually do pretty well he <laughs> called me up and said uh you know essentially what do you have going on because i think i may have something that's right up your alley um and he put me in touch with um two people at the hospital for special surgery his name is john and clark he's the chief marketing communications officer at hss um you won't find a finer human being and uh, he had put me in touch with um, Dr. Brian Kelly initially, and then uh, Lou Shapiro, who's the CEO. Uh, Brian Kelly is the, the surgeon chief. And they began to tell me, uh, and I'm, I'm going to truncate the, the story and I'll get it wrong because the time period is a bit of a blur. But essentially, you know, they were transforming this orthopedic surgical hospital, the number one orthopedic surgical hospital in the world, not even up for discussion, with this extraordinary amount of very specific talent for mm-hmm. you know getting people back to doing things they love faster than anyone else in the world and better than anyone else in the world. It's what they do. And whether you're a professional athlete or a, an aging athlete or a mom or a dad, when you got something that's busted or broken or torn, it's where you want to go. They just yeah. do it better. And um, heroically, they decided about mid-March that they would stop all their elective procedures. Now, understand it's an orthopedic surgical hospital. They make money by doing surgical procedures. That's Mm -hmm. it. So very heroically, they said, we're stopping all the stuff that we do, and we are pivoting, and we are going to build an institution that will help decant the impending overflow of COVID at our fellow hospitals where our brothers and sisters in medicine are going to be fighting this, this fight that's coming. Oh, wow. And they did exactly that. They transformed this hospital. They trained the staff. We had anesthesiologists. They know heart and lungs, and they were moving in the direction of treating COVID patients. They were working at other area hospitals, gaining that insight as this hospital was transformed. Nurses who took care of orthopedics and other orthopedic people as orthopedic patients as a specialty were now learning COVID and critical care and Mm -hmm. drug titrations and drips. Uh, I'm not doing it justice to say that it was this extraordinary event that was happening. And as soon as How fast did that happen? Um, I would have to get that for you. Okay. Uh, fast as hell. It was like in, in the process. Months. It was already in the process when, um, I was hired and we had a couple conversations. My first day in, I think well, my first day 
when I drove in was April 2nd. And soon after we began receiving patients, I would say that they, but they continued to build. So they built an area that patients were then transferred to, uh, Jen O'Neill, the church, uh, chief nursing officer was extraordinary in the way that she, um, trained her staff and brought individuals, mm-hmm. you know, it began a triaging with a doctor. Uh, there's many doctors involved and I, I want to apologize if people ever hear this podcast and I'm not leaving anybody out, but, uh, Dr. Uh, David Naiman, who's like the, one of the number one hip guys in the world, if not the, and, uh, you know, he was triaging patients that were brought up that were appropriate for care at HSS. Um, we had Laura Robbins, who was, you know, she's a, She's been in HSS for a very long time, and she is a trained social worker, and she was looking out for the mental health aspect of the employees. So they brought me in with a very loose plan for what my role was going to be, and the title was Chief of Staff Crisis Management. Um, You know, part of that was being driven by... um, We didn't know the degree of coordination that I would be possibly doing. We did know that there probably should be a title associated with it, but more importantly, we knew that there had to be flexibility in whatever it was that Steve Forty was going to be doing. So they, they hired me for a 90-day contract uh, to come in and figure out what we were going to do. And the thing that's interesting about it is it was a leadership team, um, mm. you know, Lou Shapiro uh, at the helm, uh, Brian Kelly, the surgeon in chief, who literally you know i was sort of part of this solution to throw every bit of whatever they could at this impending crisis or problem i don't know if i like the word crisis but they literally just pulled out all the stops they did whatever they could to say for their people and then um i drove in on uh april 2nd i wanted to be part of this team when i saw who they were it was Mm -hmm. like Finally, you know what I mean? Like you felt that same pull, that same calling that got you on a plane in Afghanistan. And I see these people and I um, wanted to be part of that team. Okay. And let me be perfectly clear. They didn't need Steve Forty. They would have been fine without Steve Forty. All right. I think I helped a few people along the way. Um, But this was a place like if it was really, really lacking in certain ways, it would have been easy Mm -hmm. to look really effective. But you know they are the number one at what they do because they are an incredible group of high performers. There's an incredible amount of humility in the entire organization where orthopedic surgeons were acting literally as interns taking orders to admit COVID patients. People wow. were doing yeah. what they could. Um, as a, And it was a heroic display from a lot of people. Now, sure. I was grateful for the opportunity. And what we discovered was there was this gap, right? Because there's a lot of corners in a hospital and there's a lot of things that were increasing this, this concept. I want to talk about the allostatic load on the individuals that were part of this institution. So my first efforts were focused, you know, and uh, when I say my, please know that there's this, you know, implicit R O U R in yeah. all caps and bolded, but uh, you know, our initial fear was like, well, we're going to have nurses treating COVID positive patients. They're under incredible stress. Many of them were orthopedic nurses who continue to just step up and do this job that's required, not the job that mm-hmm. they wanted. Right. And um, they were going to be stressed and uncomfortable. And this is going back to a time where it's like, how's this thing spread? You know, PPE requirements were changing every day. Mm-hmm. What is the actual lethality of this virus? Like all these yeah. different things that were going on. And these people were walking into the unknown. Um, 
and there was a place for someone and it happened to be me but someone with a background similar to mine Hmm. now they were able to i think i think i had some street credibility credibility as an icu nurse and an emergency room nurse right Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I had a bit of a, he's part of us, not fully part of us, but he's, he's part of us in the medical world, even though he's not working in that capacity here, he's kind of part of us. He knows the, the shoes to some degree. Right. Um, and then I also had this component where it's like, you know, he's a special operations guy. He's been in combat and he's different than us, but I think he might know something that could help us through whatever and whatever maybe he did in those more trying times would be helpful to us. And, and what we found that very inefficiently, um, but I hope effectively, I literally patrolled the hospital nonstop, hmm. okay? And it was very simply a matter of fact of saying like, how are you doing, right? What do you need? And there was always this you know, operational need because things were changing so, and mm-hmm. I was a conduit to just bring that information back. They had that like, it was so many times I would go back and I'd be like, hey, they need this. and you know, General Neal would be like, yeah, no, that's happening tomorrow at 1201. Like it was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sometimes it was another, you know, set of eyes on a problem where I could say like, hey, this is what they're identifying as a need. So there was that piece of it. And then the other part of it was, it was like, how are you doing? And, you know, at one o'clock in the morning, how are you doing? Sometimes goes a long way. Yeah. And then other, and the other part of it is, um, I don't know how, but I do know it's going to be okay. I do know that we're going to get through this. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, even going as far to say to be like, we always do, like, there's going to be a strategy to get through this. And if you feel stressed, well, you should, we're in the middle of a damn pandemic at the epicenter of it. Like yeah. you're not a baby. This is real. So that was the first thing. And that was, you know, among the, um, healthcare professionals, the first line providers. Right. And then what, struck me the most that I was actually embarrassed about is, you know, a few weeks in, I started discovering all these other nooks and crannies to the hospital and realized that there were people that not were not doctors and nurses and nurse anesthetists and physician assistants that were um, involved in patient care. There was environmental people that were rightfully scared that were cleaning the rooms. There were all of these people like you know, dietary, like so many yeah. people that played a role. There was security. You know, we transformed our, our, our front door. Basically, all of a sudden we had a bit of an emergency room and our security, who normally is in this fairly controlled, non-clinical setting now was in a very uncontrolled clinical setting. Right. So these roles changed. And then there was these groups like central sterile processing. They clean all the stuff that, that we use. And even though we stop at our elective surgical procedures, we still had surgical procedures going on for traumas and things that mm-hmm. couldn't wait, right? So these people now were coming in from different areas from all through New York. They were previously riding the subways and buses that were either no longer available, no longer efficient, no longer safe, right? Scary in themselves in terms of COVID. We had people double masking, you know, taking subway rides. Like it was incredibly stressful. And we had all these people coming And In the meantime, they've got ailing parents. Some of them had parents that were intubated in the ICU with COVID. So there's all these things going on, all this load. And sometimes it was just a matter of identifying who those people were, keeping an eye on them, connecting them to 
critical mental health resources, connecting them to a peer. You know, we had a peer support program. So shaking the hands with like, hey, this is your your big brother or sister in this trial right now that we're going through and we got your back. And then yeah. checking in on the next day and saying, how are you doing? And it's, I'm better than I was. How's your mom doing? She's getting better. We had good news today. And it was just that humanity and just that extra set of um, eyes on the emotional well-being of the, of the people at HSS. You know, I'm wondering, because I know a lot of people saw it on the news play out, but mm-hmm. especially if you weren't in the Northeast, you weren't in the New York area, you weren't in the epicenter, but somebody who is directly, you know, quote, on the front lines dealing with it, you know, how how significant or how much of a, I guess, of, a, of an impact was it to everybody in that area, especially when COVID was at its height, which I think yeah. uh, New York... New York City or the New York area was losing like was like up to 3,000 people a day or something like that. It was a ridiculous. I can't amount. remember the numbers, but the number of cases were certainly up there. And it was um, it was extraordinary. Like the the loss of of life was extraordinary. Now, you know, one point of clarification, having seen what I've seen. Um, I wasn't on the front lines, not by a long shot. I was intermittently connected to people who were living in the rooms, people that were staying in the rooms because they weren't coming on and off with the PPE and it was just easier to stay in the room and chart than it was. Like those are the people that the world thinks of and should. It, it, it was not me. Yeah. Um, yeah. It wasn't. Um, we have a, a, a an anesthesiologist at HSS um, and uh, – he was such an incredible example of what, you know, heroic looks like because he was across the street at New York Presbyterian before uh, we started taking patients or I think even as we were and just helping out, you know, distribute the load. And I just was basically living there. You know, um, mm-hmm. we had residents who were deployed all over the city as part of their normal orthopedic residency that were now working in the EDs in the emergency mm-hmm. rooms as first year or second wow. year. Uh, you know, it, those are the people that you're referencing. And just very clearly, that wasn't me. Yeah. I had increased risk than if I was staying inside my house, but nothing I did was extraordinary in that realm. Um, I did have opportunities, a few of them, where I was going to different uh, hospitals in the New York, New York area. And you know, from what I saw at HSS and from what I saw at these hospitals, you know, the sheer scope of it was unlike anything I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It, it was massive amounts of logistical support and manpower um, being leveraged against a problem that was growing exponentially. And it was, um, you knew it was going to ebb. And we have brilliant people that work in that space, like predictive mm-hmm. modeling, analytics, et cetera, that were saying, yeah, we agree with the numbers or it's going to be this park. And they were, they were good. Um, so you always had this, they're really good. You always had this like sort of like reality picture of if we just get to this point, then things are going to start. And we knew it wasn't going to be like, okay, we're over the hump, boom, PPE off, let's get yeah. back to normal. We knew it wasn't going to be yeah. that, but we did know there was an inflection point, right? But it was, it was, 
enormous. I, I don't know how to describe it. And, and again, my view was so different. Like at area hospitals, there were ICU nurses that did this for like months and months and months on mm-hmm. end without mm-hmm. a break. People working multiple shifts, people getting sick, getting COVID, taking time off, then getting healthy, coming back and performing that task again. It, it was a pretty Jeez. extraordinary time. Um, and I hope that we spend considerable effort as a nation to look at all those critical players to see who they were because they were the medical staff and, and no one disputes that right yeah but there was pockets of heroes that were yeah. getting the job done every single day mm-hmm. and playing a role that are doing a thing you know i always say that your relative emotional exposure for post-traumatic stress is directly tied to how close you are to your technical or tactical proficiency Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're in your zone and you're in your flow state, like you're good. You really are. Yeah. You're good. Right. But then it's like, well, hey, we're going to change your job this much. And then we're going to change it this. And we're going to give you a new piece of equipment and a new radio and a new weapon system and a new this. And now you're not as familiar with this. Or now you're on a different team that you haven't gelled with. And that's when that heightened state, you know, starts to spike. That's when that Alice, you know, static load begins bearing down on an individual that starts having metabolic implications to their well-being mm. and uh, i think that's a lot of what you're going to see here in the in in the country for yeah. the mental health crisis that is without a doubt it's not whether or not a, a mental health crisis is coming to the united states we are at the beginning yeah. of it and it is going to be profound I, i'm kind of curious like um I, I think i was talking to like um, a couple other nurses and i i know it's kind of a no one really knows but they were basically talking about how the economy you know was affected by it and and they're basically saying that they don't think things will actually go back to normal normal until like 2024. Mm. they said that businesses will probably recover eh, for the most part by like 2022 but the social aspects of being around each other and not that like weird like you're standing next to someone and you start to see them kind of inch away like for just things to like go away and go back to normal, yeah. they were thinking like, I think last year it was like four years. I don't know that I would disagree with that. Um, we, we've we got a, a group of children that don't remember what it's like to not wear a mask in a setting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I would disagree with that. Like, you know, you can say, hey, we're all open for business, but I still see people wearing masks walking yep. the streets in New York. Yep. And now I'm yeah. fully vaccinated, plus I'm certain I had it. And quite frankly, I'm done with masks, truly. Like if I'm in a clinical yeah. setting at the hospital, I'm compelled to wear it, but I'm done. Like emotionally, I'm done. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, um, and I think there's a lot of people there. I think there are a lot of people that will never unmask. And yeah. I think that this That's is one of those bad. things because if you're in healthcare, we go back to my assumption, right? The closer you are to your technical, tactical proficiency, Okay. People say like, well, they've never been here before. Let's talk like critical care nurses, nurses, nurse anesthetists, doctors, physicians, assistants. They're not unfamiliar with PPE. They're not unfamiliar with working in, in these conditions. Now the longevity and the, the lethality of this virus was, was pretty scary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being overwhelmed was a scary proposition, but I, I think and I'm not diminishing what these people went through by any stretch of the imagination. But I think you will see that correlation for 
people who were compelled to all of a sudden start wearing PPE and the amount of residual anxiety and stress that they have as a result of it. So, mm. you know, think about like being a grocery worker. Like these people mm. had to go to work, had to be, te- you know, a, a checkout, right? So they're working checkout, they're wearing a mask. People are coming in, they're being exposed to 12, 13, 14, 1500 people per day for the lowest bracket of income and wage. Mm-hmm. No emotional support. The Blue Angels are not flying over the the Whole Foods for them, right? Yeah. And here they are, and even some of them are like, "I'm a single mom or dad. Like, I, I don't have the choice. We need insurance. I have to go to work. Like, I'm not being a hero. I have to do this, and I don't have an option, and I'm not being given the option. People yeah. need food to eat. So, I think that's what's coming down the pipe for us as a nation. How do we start safeguarding? those unsung heroes well well being. And I know the medical profession is going to have it as well, but I am equally concerned about the people in our everyday life that were so profoundly affected mm-hmm. by this. You know, it's it, it goes back to what we were about to talk about at the very beginning when we were talking about the the comparison of of 911 mm. and the comparison to COVID and how there was such a unity be, behind 911, but I think it was because it was such an instantaneous thing and it was a clearly visible enemy whereas covid was there were so many things going on at once people didn't really know who the enemy was people didn't really know if this was even a real virus like there's still people questioning whether or not it is and which is insane to me but one thing that i'm, I'm hoping does not come from this is i feel like when 9-11 happened there was an immediate surge of support for first responders, for f- fire and and, and uh, police officers and everything. But then that support kind of slowly trickled away. Mm-hmm. And now you're seeing a lot of the people who who were there having respiratory diseases to having a lot of issues of, of all the you know toxins that they inhaled and things like that is I'm hoping that doesn't happen to the people who are affected, who were truly on the front line and were the, the, the nurses that were thrown into the middle of it that had to work those long hours that probably are going to feel the effects of PTSD long after the COVID is done. Yeah. And just, I'm, I'm wondering if, if there's a solution or a lesson to be learned from everything that we've gone through as a nation in the past, that hopefully we can have a message of this is how we need to perform moving forward. I am continually impressed by people's resilience, right? Um, And at the same time, I am continually surprised by the ability for people to forget the emotional magnitude of certain moments. And you brought up the time about 9-11, right? Mm -hmm. Overnight, galvanized people usa yep. usa usa right and i remember um <laughs> you know some time had passed and I, I truly don't remember how much time had passed but i do remember there was an inflection point i was up in newport um rhode island where my unit was stationed out of and i was you know pulling out of a gas station and in fairness i pulled out a little bit uh too slowly you know like it just just it was a bad driving judgment right and uh somebody you know waves around me gets in front of me whatever and they start losing their mind giving me the finger and i was like okay we're back to normal now like (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
somebody's losing their <laughs> shit over, you know, a, a re- and it wasn't even an awful judgment call. It was a reasonably bad driving decision on my part, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hope that we begin the process now of levying the assets that are necessary to start safeguarding these individuals at the 12 month, 18 and 24 month mark and the 10 year mark from now. Like we, we have this reactive um, positioning with most, most crises, right? Like we, a crisis happens and we start living resources and we pull out all the stops for it. Well, it's better than not doing that. Right. However, you know, what are we going to do to safeguard people going forward? And, and I'll, I'll bring up one example right now. It's a pet peeve of mine. We know that insulin receptivity is a bad thing uh, or insulin insensitivity is a somewhat correlates with COVID mortality. We know obesity certainly does. We know vitamin D deficiency certainly does. We are not having a conversation about anybody losing weight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are we not having a conversation? And now we're coming up on 18 months. If every single person just lost a pound per month, think of how much that would safeguard, right? But when mm-hmm. our time is spent arguing over the efficacy of certain vaccines or not, or whether certain people should get vaccines and certain people shouldn't, and we've politicized just about everything, and we're still not down to the core fact of the matter is that um, with the exception of the vaccine, I think, this, I'm not a medical person when I'm saying this, and I'm not representing HSS when I'm saying this, um, but from a medical perspective, I think the most important thing that we could do is vaccinate people, right? But the second most important thing we could do is start addressing the public health crisis here in the nation. Mm-hmm. It is very rare, if ever, that the healthiest and strongest among us are more susceptible to a pandemic, right? You know, there. I mean, the pandemic that took place in you know the in in 1917 actually did attack young people, but that's because their immunity. Uh, they didn't have the immunity from 1865 when the pandemic struck. Then, so yeah. I, I can't believe we're here and no one is talking about fitness. No one is talking mm-hmm. about vitamin D. Nobody's saying get out in the sun. Nobody's saying get out. There's been a lot of podcasts with a lot of smart people that have talked about it and discussed these yeah. things, like. We know vitamin D is important. Staying inside actually decreases vitamin D. Get outside seems to be a natural solution, but we're not having those conversations. We're talking about Mm -hmm. whether or not kids should be masked during lacrosse and football practice. Like, you think we need a mask outside? Yeah. It's it's kind of like those, uh, it's like that people always laugh at that would wear them inside their car and they're the only ones inside the car. Unless you're an Uber driver and it's just easier to keep it on. Yeah. like, yeah, there, there's got to be something to this, you know, that's negative. And, and that's an sort of my frustration. So, you know, rather than so, so there's that piece, you know, to answer your question or to comment on your question. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, I hope people wake up to the fact that you need to be your own 911, right? Like, it's not saying that you can't have 911 and you shouldn't have 911 and you shouldn't have all the support and everything from the military, the government, all those things. But if you live your life and create a, a, an attitude or cultivate an attitude that there's no one else coming, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's you, you know, you're your family's hero or you are your own hero. And if you started 
making decisions and preparing for those things in that way, then the government, then the 911 call becomes a nice to have. The medical community, mm -hmm. the heroes on the front line is a nice to have. It's a thank God we have. Mm -hmm. It's not a, we need it for our survivability. Yep. And I think, and I, I'm making shit up here, but I, I would say that that was how my grandfather felt and how his grandfather felt. Like, I don't think they relied on the, on the government for much of anything, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. they certainly didn't um, rely on the government to handle it. I mean, they signed up and enlisted in massive amounts for World War II. Yeah. Like, so be your own 911, I guess, is what I, I hope we take away from this. But I'm not seeing that and it's concerning me because I don't know what happens. I mean, we literally, <laughs> we have unidentified aerial phenomena yeah. on radar and video i mean everywhere and yeah. only in 2021 2020 is it not even like really acknowledged and discussed right? well that's the that's the interesting part is now we're segueing into that but i remember i was reading an article that said uh, remember those people that were telling the government that there were aliens back in the day and they're like nah it's weather balloons and now it's opposite. Now the government's like, okay, Pentagon actually released that there's evidence that F-15 pilots and commercial airliners are seeing them every day off the coast of the Carolinas almost every day. And now people are like, nah, it's probably weather balloons. I'm like, you guys fucking wanted this like 20 years ago. Right. right. Well, because now that it's real, now it might be a little bit like, so let me get this straight. You know, these things can basically move flawlessly in and out of our airspace. Yeah, yeah bring them no down. Control. I want to meet them. Yeah. That's where I'm at with it. I want to say hello to them. Hopefully they, you know, they'll be friendly. I have to think I, I, and I truly have to believe this fact that, right. Like, so whatever it is, is so clearly a drone. <laughs> right, like there's, there's just no way there's a man craft cooped up for however many seconds it takes. It's for a them future to drone. Um, but seriously, I, I, I think it's going to be an interesting story, but the, the, it brings up such an interesting point that when you have this, like, you know, we didn't think there would be civil unrest throughout most of the nation as of March or April of last year, but we had significant civil unrest. And then we certainly didn't think there would be unidentified aerial phenomena. Oh man. I would not for a second think that within two or three months, you and I aren't texting each other being like, didn't see this one coming. <laughs> yeah. 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 Giant moths. Who knew? Like, so I think we need to get used to the fact that we need to start preparing for what is entirely unexpected yeah. and something we've never seen before. I think, we I think we're now. having that, that realization, like you said, they're a little, a little nervous now because now it challenges beliefs. It challenges everything that we've ever known. And, uh, and then there's that funny joke that like, they're probably just watching us realizing that we're slowly killing each other off. And they're like, we're not even going to show ourselves until they're ready to, settle their own shit out yeah right or they're like okay like they're reporting back to hire and they're like they got enough nuclear power to just unload on this earth like 900 times over like we don't know if we want to poke this bear let's not make any rash decisions that might lead <laughs> to an intergalactic anything like maybe they're the mature ones oh yeah like, exactly they've settled their so, disputes yeah. light years back um, right to your point you were just talking about though is uh and we talked about this when we were in person 
is um, being prepared for the unknown, but not being fearful of the unknown Mm -hmm. and really preparing yourself, your body, your mind, being in the most stable, healthy position you can be to really provide for yourself, your family, your community, whatever it is. Um, And you talked a lot about, you know, um, the sleep that you're getting, the physical fitness, and and you talked about it being outside and things like that. The sleep hygiene. Yeah, just, you know, how how important is is really all of that to all of us yeah so all of these things are it's a trade-off right i wish i can get Mm -hmm. 10 hours a night i i don't think i could even if i had the bandwidth and time to do so right like you know but let's say that you could get like everything is in this sort of a flux state right like there's a need and you know, there's a need and a capability and, and sometimes those things match up and that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but we trade and I don't do this anymore, but I used to, you know, I would trade binge watching three episodes of the walking dead. Right. And thinking to myself, well, I'm pretty well prepared if that ever happens, not saying I'd be a lot more prepared if I got another two or three hours of sleep tonight. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so we, we constantly trade in this currency of time. We only have time is the, is the constraint for all these things. So there's time that's a constraint for physical fitness for, you know, the, the health of the food that we put into our bodies and the sleep, like sleep is my pet. Food, 100%. Right? There's, there's a few things. Um, and they're critical and, you know, we treat aging, um, like an inevitable possibility, but we should be treating it like a disease and we treat disease Mm -hmm. like an inevitable possibility. So I think we need to fundamentally shift and we talk about like, you know, be your own dot, dot, dot. Well, maybe the dot, dot, dot is be your own care provider. Yeah. You know, be the person that gets sleep early because over time sleep matters. You know, we talk, I, 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 I'm candid. I'm sober for six years now. Right. Never had this catastrophic event that led to my sobriety. I knew it wasn't working for me. I knew it was getting in the way of the pursuit of the things I loved and cared about and enjoyed. So I made a decision to live deliberately and stop drinking. Um, mm-hmm. I suspect drinking is probably not good for the prevention of communicable diseases. Mm-hmm. Yet alcohol sales went through the roof during COVID, right? Yeah. And we know we know that it gains weight and we know that it interferes with sleep. So I think there needs to be an honest discussion about like, what are we going to start putting a prize on for what are we going to start emphasizing right so are we going to start having the conversations where it's like you know alcohol moderation is not a couple glasses seven days a week yeah right like alcohol moderation has a scale and i'm not judging anybody that doesn't follow sobriety i think if you are a person that could incorporate alcohol reasonably into your life and enjoy a celebration that's great it's not who i was yeah. ever will be and i got a mother that proved it and i got a grandfather that proved it as well and probably a long line of you know alcohol misusers that that preceded them i think it's important we start having honest discussions with ourselves right as a nation we're morbidly obese yeah okay um we don't sleep enough we make poor consumption choices and whether that's in the food that we ate or whether that is in the alcohol that we consume or the drugs that we use, we, we make generally poor choices. Mm-hmm. We prioritize um, consumption of alcohol or misconsumption of a lot of things over fitness, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. over walking. You know, We say like, ah, 2021, I'm going to run a marathon. 
Well, how about you run four or five Ks, one per quarter, and improve and train your time each one? How far would that get us as a nation? Or how far would that get us individually as somebody who is closer towards reasonable physical fitness instead of training out to run a marathon and then having an overuse injury at week eight mm-hmm. of your training? And then you're going to say, well, I'm going to do it two or three years ago, two or three years from now. Um, these things are critically important. Nutrition is critically important. Hydration is critically important. Sleep is profoundly important. When you look at things, and I don't want to get into statistics, but the tie between insomnia and suicide is extraordinary. If you take insomnia and alcohol, it goes up. If you take insomnia, alcohol, and lethal uh, access to lethal means, it goes up even further. Wow. We have 18 to 25 veterans a day committing suicide. Mm-hmm. that is pandemic that is a, 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 that is an epidemic in itself mm-hmm. there's a mental health crisis right um but we don't talk about meditation and high five each other as men or women for it's like you did yoga four times this week that's fantastic we didn't say oh my god you didn't drink in eight days that's fantastic yeah what do we high five each other for yeah, I got up this morning. I did CrossFit with a hangover. I got my workout in. I slept in my car for an hour. I got my work done and now I got to go. We need to change what we reward and we need to be a little bit more respectful for the mm-hmm. one go round we have in this existence. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious on, on your point as we start to wrap up, even tying that into that helps everybody with civilians, but how do you really think that that can affect what are, you know, veterans, like, what do you think from your lessons you've learned and seeing how it's affected other veterans, what steps can they be taking to make their transition easier with some of these things? Listen, I, I can't, I think there is a time. So I'll, I'll answer that on the sobriety piece, right? Because I think that's a critical component to, to what we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking to somebody whose grandfather hung himself in his basement, you know, who was an alcohol abuser. It is a informed opinion. Might be wrong on a larger scale, but I don't think so. Um, the veteran piece is a complicated one, right? Mm-hmm. Because we give praise and thanks in fits and spurs. We, you know, yeah. it's a hero's welcome home, and then it's now what, right? And mm-hmm. it's. Um, we, we, we drop the ball on the continuity of care. Mm-hmm. And they're getting better from the VA perspective, yeah. but the VA is a medical piece, right? So when we talk about what should we be doing is, well, it should begin that the day that you get a soldier in your care or in basic training, you start talking about the importance of sleep hygiene. But instead, what do we do? Well, we put them through 13 weeks of basic training. We give them four and a half hours of sleep a night. We underfeed them. They're hypocaloric. They're profoundly dehydrated. Many of them are injured in training. And then we send them into a similar environment where we tell them they haven't done anything or no shit yet. And they continue to be treated in a similar fashion. Then they go to advanced training like ranger school where you get even more sleep deprivation, you're even more malnourished and you get further down this continuum of getting broken as a person, mm-hmm. right? And along that whole way, right, you go through this ebb and flow of over consumption of alcohol and it's rewarded, yeah. it's high fives. I don't want the guy that can't PT hung over, ha, 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 right? Anybody mm-hmm. could shoot straight you know, with the good night's rest. I want the guy that could do it or the gal that could do it under ABC conditions. Ha, ha, ha. And we don't high five 
for it's like, what'd you do this weekend? Not much. Got my personal affairs in order. <laughs> I read, I, I journaled because we know that gratitude plays a role in, in grounding. Uh, I did some breath work. I learned a new skill in coping with stress. I met with a group of guys and whether it's a Bible study, which if it's your thing, it's your thing, or whether yeah. it's a, a group of people that get together for any common purpose. And then you actually start your Monday off fully hydrated, nourished, not hungover, and you go to work, right? So the, the problem, so there's the transitioning piece, right? And that is down here, that is down the road, okay? But we should be caring for them and preparing them for the transition the minute they meet with the recruiter. Mm -hmm. And we should own that aspect of it because as senior leaders, non-commissioned or otherwise, or officers, we own that soul. You're talking about an 18-year-old kid from wherever. Mm -hmm. Varying background, various socioeconomic, very, uh, varying degrees of preparedness for the enormity of what they're about to undergo for 36 months. And we drop the ball the day we meet them. And we should be teaching them the tools, right? Because when you're going to a mental health provider, and the stigma should not be there for that. And if you need that, that's great. It should be available to them. But when you go to the mental health provider, we've already gotten you behind the power curve. When you should mm -hmm. be doing the things leading up to that, where that can be an adjunct assistance. It could be something that could help turn the corner or help strategize a yeah. better way of doing things versus like, I think I'm coming apart and I need to talk to somebody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's where it begins. Day one, when we take a soldier into the care and we owe it to them and we owe it to their families and we drop the ball on that. Yeah. yeah. I've been out yeah. for a bit. Maybe they've gotten better, but I don't know. Nah. Well, yeah, the numbers the aren't getting better. So, I mean, I think that's telling in itself. Yeah. Right. And it, it's very unfortunate. And, you know, going back to Bo's point at the very beginning where we were talking about different service organizations, organizations and, uh, and, um, uh, children of the fallen Patriots is like, there's so many different veteran service organizations out there that you would think we could figure this out. Mm -hmm. You you would think we would have enough money and support between behind these programs to figure this out. But obviously there's a systematic issue and whether it's to your point in that day one, walking into basic training or into your unit and not having the right mentor to teach you, you know, how to cope with the stresses of serving in the military, or it's that mentor that's helping you when you're leaving the military and telling you, Hey, things are going to be different. And this is what you need to think of. Yeah. But the problem is, is in that transition piece, 99.9% .9 of the time, there's nobody available who's went through it because everybody's been serving the entire time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's nobody there to teach them, hey, you're going to go through X, Y, and Z. Just realize what this is going to be like. And let me tell you the right and wrong things to do. Instead, they try and bring some outside person who has no credibility you've never right. served with, you don't have any sort of connection with them. So why would you listen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my computer's at 4%. I'll talk to you guys as long as you want, but if we're going to do it, I want to plug in. So um, let me know if you want to continue this. You guys have me as long as you need me tonight. No, you're good. Um, well, it, it, I don't know if you wanted to respond to that, but if you do. I do. No, yeah. I do. So yeah, plug in. Um, there is, I think I got time for, for that. Uh, it's a new computer. So I think I got some time on the battery. <laughs> Probably got about 10 minutes left. You're um, good. 
man, doesn't it strike a chord with you when you talk about being your own 911? Right. Mm -hmm. So how do we prepare these individuals for that transition versus that person, that outside person that has no credibility? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I went through the VA system. I've actually had some decent um, results with going through the VA for certain things. Mm -hmm. I also have my own counselor that I talk to um, for things that happened in the military and things that happened out of the military. Yeah. The mental health professional piece is an incredibly complex dance. Right. It's kind of mm -hmm. like speed dating that costs you a lot of money. Like it takes a bit to yeah. find the right person. You got to retell your own story. You know, you don't know if that's going to be the right fit or the right dance partner. And it's, yep. it's painful and it's easy to give up on. Yeah. Right. And then, like you said, they bring in outside consultants, you know, I know in the military, right. So the Ranger regiment is a special organization. I have no affiliation with it, but it's a special organization. As you know, the Marine Corps takes mm -hmm. this journey seriously right mm -hmm. and they care for their people what we need is this widespread um, cultural shift mm -hmm. to where it's like your service is going to break you to some degree yeah your service is going to break you whether you deploy to combat or not you jump out of planes you're going to leave us fucking broken you're going to leave us less than what you came to us as and we owe it to you to equip you Right. Mm -hmm. But instead you get this and I've seen them, the non-commissioned officers and officers are like, you know, I've had friends call me up, say like, Hey, my, my son is in Fort Benning or my son is here. And this is what happened. And I've been told stories of people just failing in the recognition of the emotional state or the emotional fragility uh, and, a, a, and, a, and a, a, a reasonable person would be stressed by entering a combat environment. An 18 year old person, yeah. who's never left their hometown, hometown will be reasonably stressed or profoundly stressed, and rightfully so, when mm -hmm. someone starts shooting at you and trying to kill your friends. Mm -hmm. And we have to stop treating the response to that as a character flaw. Yeah, mm -hmm. It's infuriating. Yeah, It's absolutely yeah. infuriating. Not always. I, listen, I had the luxury of firing my first shots in a combat environment at age... 37, 36, I'd lived a lifetime already. I'd been in emergency rooms. I'd seen terrible things, Yeah, mm -hmm. right? I've been inoculated to it to some degree. You know, I, when I worked at Bridgeport Hospital, you see pediatric burns and child abuse, and, like, horrific shit, but that does inoculate you to some degree. And when you see those things, you're surrounded by people in a nursing environment that put their arm around you and say, yeah, this is awful. And we yeah. get it. And unfortunately, yeah. you're not going to see more of it and you're not going to get used to it. But that sometimes is enough. But we don't necessarily have I, I haven't witnessed that to the same degree as I have in the military. When yeah. are we going to start equipping people to be their own response? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Steve, I can't uh, I know, Dan, I can't thank you enough for just finally having you on. I know that uh, all of our lives are are busy and we're, we're trying to juggle everything at once, especially you being a busy man and, and running such an incredible company and help leading that. And uh, just thank you for being on and sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, listen, I'm so grateful for your time and uh, these conversations are therapeutic for me as well. And um, I will talk to you both at any time as much as you would like on any topic that you want to talk to. You're, you're a pleasure to know and it's an honor to meet you both. I think what you did um, in the book is um, extraordinary and helpful and it mm -hmm. tells a story in a very unique and special way that I think is going to resonate with uh, people that it matters to. So 
you know, everyone chooses their line of service and you guys continue to serve us uh, in the military community. And uh, I'm grateful for it and grateful to know you both. Absolutely. Well, thank you so and much. I know words, uh, yeah. we're very excited for people to open up the book and, and read more of your story in there too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I look forward to it as well. Thanks you so much guys. All right. All right, Have a great thanks, thank you.